From O'Melveny and Myers, this is the Cram Down Podcast. Welcome to the Cram Down. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. I'm your host, Daniel Shama, a partner um, in O'Melveny's Restructuring Group. Thank you, everyone, for, for joining us. Uh, it's hot outside, but it's a cool restructuring market. So what better topic to talk about than the recent uh, trend of rapid fire, quick 24-hour bankruptcies? And, and who better to talk about that topic uh, with than my partner, Joe Zakowski? Joe, how you doing, buddy? Good, buddy. How are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, happy to have you. So let's just get right into it, because as I said in our last episode, we're going to try to keep these short and topical and not bog it down. So, and, and I promise this one will be shorter than a 24-hour bankruptcy. We'll try to keep it to 30 minutes or less. Um, maybe let's start with basics, because I think we've been seeing this trend a lot of companies coming in and out of bankruptcy in, in a day, even less than a day uh, in some circumstances. And in all of these articles, we talk about, the, the, they're talked about as prepacks, as prepackaged bankruptcies. Maybe, Joe... You know, talk a little bit about what is a prepack. I think it's a, it's a it's used very loosely to describe a lot of things, but I think in this particular instance, it's describing something very specific about what's gotten done before the bankruptcy filing. Sure, thanks, Daniel. So, a, a prepackaged bankruptcy simply refers to a bankruptcy where uh, there is a deal reached with relevant creditors prior to the commencement of a case, and critically, uh, solicitation of votes on a plan of reorganization. Uh, is conducted before the company files for bankruptcy as opposed to after. Uh, in a true prepackaged bankruptcy, um, the vote process is is begun and completed before before the case is commenced on, on, under applicable rules of the federal rules of bankruptcy procedure. Um, there are you know other types of filings, you know what we refer to as pre-negotiated or pre-arranged cases uh, where, uh, there's a deal that's completed pre-petition, but the solicitation occurs post-petition. And to make things even more complicated, um, there, are, there are types of cases called straddled prepackaged bankruptcies, where you commence solicitation pre-filing, the solicitation wraps up post-filing, uh, but for a number of complicated reasons, you're able to take advantage of the prepackaged uh, uh, bankruptcy rules and the federal rules. But at the highest level, um, prepackaged cases refer to cases where there is a deal that's reached with key creditors pre-petition, and in some circumstances, voting either begins or is completed pre-filing. And why why do people uh, opt for prepackaged bankruptcies? Like, what's the point of them? Um, why wouldn't you just do the voting, the solicitation, and the voting in bankruptcy? Why start before there's even a process? Sure. Look, I think the purpose is relatively self-evident, and it's to make, you know, a case quick. Uh, It's to keep expenses down. Uh, It's to be able to convey to the market and customers and vendors that notwithstanding the fact that there is a bankruptcy filing, uh, it's not going to be a protracted filing. There's a deal reached with key interested parties. The bankruptcy isn't isn't going to affect the business. And from a a restructuring perspective, a professional perspective, Prepackaged cases are often a fraction uh, of, of the cost of cases where a company goes into bankruptcy uh, without a deal with key parties. So it sounds like a double-edged sword for the advisors. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, you know, we, we're sort of a victim of our own success sometimes. Um, but I guess that sort of leads to this, this recent phenomenon of, of 24-hour bankruptcies or even shorter. Um, maybe start 
by describing some of the instances where we've seen this before, um, because it seems to be something that's happened, you know, really over the last couple of years. Um, and, you know, and it seems to be predominantly located in just a couple of places. Um, and, and just maybe just describe how this has come about from your perspective. Sure. Um, so I think the two jurisdictions in which companies have been able to get in and out in 24 hours are the Southern District of Texas and the Southern District of New York. Um, I, I'll start with the Southern District of Texas, and then maybe you can hit on some of the Southern District of New York cases. Uh, but we recently represented uh, the ad hoc uh, first lien lender group uh, in the restructuring of, of Belk Incorporated, which is one of the largest department store chains in the south, you know, in, in the southern southeastern part of the United States. Um, we reached a deal with the company, the equity sponsor, uh, and the and the ad hoc group of, uh, of second lien lenders uh, on a complete balance sheet restructuring, which involved um, uh, a, a conversion. Uh, of existing secured debt into new debt at a discount, uh, a new capital raise that was led by existing first and second lien lenders. Um, and, uh, you know, in light of the concessions made by first and second lien lenders, we were able to accomplish a Chapter 11 case where all unsecured trade debt rode through the bankruptcy and was unimpaired. Um, this deal was reached, um, you know, at the end of last year into the beginning of this year. Um, we were able to reach an agreement pre-petition uh, we were able to effectuate a bankruptcy case where solicitation uh, um, began and ended uh, pre-filing. Um, you know, I think Belk is notable because not only did we have a deal where we completed solicitation pre-petition, but we also got um, commitments from from all of the new money participants done pre-petition. So it was an extra layer of complexity that I don't believe existed in some of the other 24-hour cases. Um, but it, you know the case, the the company was in and out of bankruptcy, uh, you know, in 24 hours. The case stayed open, notwithstanding the company's emergence, uh, you know, for a period after bankruptcy to address some concerns that, ju that judges Isger raised at the first day hearing. Um, but the Southern District of Texas, you know, is is now one of two primary jurisdictions where there's precedent for 24-hour bankruptcy cases. But Daniel, maybe you want to talk about some of the cases in the Southern District of New York. Um, and maybe talk about some of the concerns that judges go raised in Belk. Well, let's let's come back to the concerns um, raised in Belk in a second. So, because um, I actually have a couple of thoughts that I wanted to just spell, you know, um, un unspool a little bit with you. So, so first of all, as as Joe was just saying, um, you know, in addition to the Southern District of Texas, where the complex complex cases are all assigned to either Judge Isger or Judge Jones, um, the only other judge um, as of now who's blessed these rapid bankruptcies is Judge Drain, who probably many many members of our audience knows sits in White Plains in the Southern District of New York. So he did it in Sun Guard and he did it in Full Beauty. Um, and in both of those were, you know, also, you know, one day or less in bankruptcy. Um, before we get to um, Judge Isgo's concerns around um, due process and notice, because I think um, we'll come back to that. That's, the, I think, the biggest um, issue people have raised with this phenomenon is the idea of notice, right? Where you're, you're in court, you're out of court and barely, you know, you barely have enough time to even read the papers that were filed. I think we have to just sort of, you know, get a little bit deeper on why, um, or sort of what are the circumstances under which, you know, you can get one of these because in a vacuum, I think if you're a profession, if you're a, if you're a principal, right, if you're a lender or you're a private equity sponsor or the company, 
you know, you know, sometimes you hear the word bankruptcy and, and it's, it's a terrifying prospect um, because of all the uncertainty around it, right? You hear bankruptcy, you, you, you're afraid of liquidation, you're afraid of professional expenses getting out of control. And if I told you that, um, you know, you can get in and out of bankruptcy in a day, um, I think every client would jump at that opportunity. But I think you alluded to this a little bit earlier, Joe, it's not the right answer for a lot of circumstances. And I think the most important factor here is that trade is usually unimpaired in these, right? Because I think if you impair trade, it substantially complicates the the possibility of getting any kind of prepack done, certainly not a one-day prepack. And I think, Joe, maybe I'll turn it back to you. It's both for legal and operational reasons, right? Because in a, in a, in a prepack, you're announcing the intent to file for bankruptcy before you actually file for bankruptcy, right? And so everybody knows you're going to file, right? And so if you're going to impair trade, maybe talk a little bit about what are some of the consequences for the company and for the business if the if trade vendors or or the or the company's customers or consumers um, are concerned about what the implications for their bankruptcy and if they're not assured that their claims and business interests are just going to ride through. Yeah, I, I think it's an excellent point. I think one, um, you know, there's no precedent for these expedited 24-hour cases. You know, in in situations where unsecured creditors are 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 are, are impaired. Um, you know, is it possible that you could, you know, in, in extremely dire situations, uh, you know, do a one day prepackaged bankruptcy and, and, and just take the position that unsecured creditors are deemed to reject the, you know, the, 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 the plan and there is no value for them? You know, that would be extremely difficult. But in all of the cases that we've talked about in the Southern District of Texas and the Southern District of New York, um, you know, they were unimpairment plans from the perspective of unsecured creditors. But Joe, let me, let me interrupt you right there for one second before you get to the practical. I know the second point you were going to make, but let's let's just let's want to stop you right there for one second. There's also a legal issue. Right. So let's let's take your hypothetical. Right. Let's let's take the situation where you're going to zero out unsecured creditors and they're going to deem to reject the plan. So you don't have to worry about them voting. Um, and, and therefore you make the argument that judge, we don't need to be in bankruptcy very long. If I'm an unsecured creditor in that circumstance, I mean, I'm arguing, uh, I'm getting my valuation testifying expert up ready to go. I'm, I'm, I'm agitating to get a committee appointed. I just have to think that the judge is going to be under enormous pressure to, you know, when you're talking about zeroing out the unsecureds to make sure that that's really the case, right? I mean, unless you're like in a, a Lehman Brothers melting ice cube, you know, Western capitalism is about to collapse situation. I, I, I think it's it strikes me that trying to pull that through. I mean, look, anything's possible. Um, you know, the practice constantly evolves and new cases are always you know, presenting new challenges and new opportunities. But that strikes me as a very that could potentially be a very problematic fact pattern for a judge, don't you think? A- a- absolutely. And there's certainly no precedent for it. Yep. And so you were going to get to say about the operational challenges, because I imagine if you're a vendor, you're not exactly extending credit when you're about to be impaired under a plan and the company's announced they're filing for bankruptcy in 30 days. Absolutely. So I think the sort of first point is, you know, in sort of thinking through, do you have the ingredients for a one-day pre-pack? I think ingredient one is certainly a deal with with major secured and and sort of what we call funded or, you know, unsecured bond groups. Uh, you know, ingredient two is almost certainly going to be allowing other unsecured trade debt to ride through the case. 
And ingredient three is having a somewhat, you know, often having a somewhat limited base of equity holders um, in a situation where you had, you know, a publicly traded company with thousands of equity holders, um, you know, given that, that, you know, in a lot of these cases, you know, equity is going to be impaired, um, you know, it, it, it is much simpler to do a, or to think about doing a 24-hour case in a situation where there's a limited number of equity holders uh, that can consent to this filing, often in exchange for leases and maybe some other consideration offered under the plan. So in, in terms of ingredients, I think those three ingredients are key. And I think what you said there is important because I think the other obvious question that one could ask about all of this is like, why bother, right? If you're just getting out of bankruptcy in one day, like why don't you just restructure out of court, right? If all you're doing is just doing a balance sheet deleveraging, you're just cutting a deal with your financial creditors, you know who they are, um, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it, you negotiated like, like in Belk, right? We negotiated all the documents up front. We, um, you know, all the commitments were all lined up. We were able to, you know, close that deal within, you know, a day of, of coming in out of bankruptcy. Why bother? <laughs> what was the point of filing for bankruptcy? And I think, I, I think the idea is it gives um, additional comfort to the investors, um, both existing investors and, and the future investors, that their liability is cabined, right? These plans have third-party releases. We'll come back to that in a second. And so you know that your pre-petition, as short as that petition period was, everything that happened before is going to be is going to be you know released and, and cleansed. And you also know that your the, the transaction you're actually consummating, right? The deal you're cutting is going to be blessed, right? So if it's if it's a if it's some kind of if it's a restructuring a debt for equity or if there's even a sale which I haven't seen in one of these but there's no reason why you couldn't do it that way if the marketing was sufficient pre-petition um, you know you're not worried about fraudulent transfer risk you're not worried about breach of fiduciary duty risk and so the cost of you know for in many circumstances the prep for a bankruptcy filing because you still have all the work that goes into prepping for bankruptcy you still file first day motions you still file all the petitions you still have to get all the board resolutions done. It's a fair bit of work that goes into that, um, but you've managed to control um, the administrative costs and the risks of the bankruptcy you know, potentially being derailed and and you know rogue uh, participants you know increasing uh, complexity and uncertainty. Um, and in exchange, what you're getting is, for lack of a better word, a clean bill of health. Um, and knowing that when you're coming out of it, your um, um, you know you, you don't have to worry that someone's going to second guess what was done um, as part of these transactions. Um, so Joe, I think you mentioned, you started to mention earlier, maybe you want to just elaborate on the question um, a little bit more, but let me, let me start by teeing it up and then you can elaborate. I think the biggest criticism of, of, of the, these rapid fire bankruptcies is this notice issue. And so maybe, um, you know, how, how would you sort of characterize that issue exactly? Sure. Uh, you know, I, it is a sort of hallmark principle, you know, of, of Chapter 11 cases and Chapter 11 practice uh, that all parties in interest, which is sort of broadly defined as, you know, all, you know, parties that could have a claim against the debtor or that could have an equity interest in the debtor, um, you know, whether those interests are, are sort of, you know, uh, present or, or, or contingent, get notice of their, get, get, get notice of the case, get notice of the filing and, and can begin to understand uh, you know, their rights and, and, and potentially work with counsel to understand their rights, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the debtor. The 
24-hour cases sort of certainly make that complicated because by the time folks receive notice of the bankruptcy case, the debtor, you know, absent another order from the court preserving, you know, certain rights will be in and out of bankruptcy and the plan will have gone effective. Um, And that's sort of a key point, right? Sort of what gets, you know, what, what gets a debtor out of bankruptcy is the effectiveness and the effective date of a plan of reorganization. And that in these 24-hour bankruptcies is happening on the same day um, the debtor uh, the debtor files for bankruptcy, which is which is unusual and exceptional. Um, in Belk and in certain other cases, courts have expressed concerns um, that r- rights available to, to to certain parties, which really are on the periphery of of the main financial restructuring that's being um, you know accomplished under the plan, you know, are are, are preserved. I think one example. Um, you know, is the right of unsecured creditors that have contracts uh, that are being assumed under the plan. Normally, uh, you know, those creditors would have the ability to say, even though their contracts are being assumed, that they're not receiving adequate assurance of future performance, you know, from the debtor, which is a bankruptcy code requirement for counterparties uh, under assumed contracts. Uh, Obviously, in a scenario where cases are trying to be processed in a day, the ability to raise an adequate assurance objection is difficult. And what we've seen and what we saw in Belk, and you can you can speak to Judge Isger's you know, order in Belk, you know, is, is bankruptcy courts trying to preserve um, some of these, you know, fundamental, but but in many ways, secondary rights, uh, you know, that are available to creditors, you know, and, and other parties that exist normally in bankruptcy cases and trying to make sure those those rights are, are preserved in some way in connection with 24-hour cases. But why don't you talk a little bit more about Judge Isgur's order in Belk, because I think it, 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 it hits the issue perfectly. Yeah, and I think Belk is a great um, example because it kind of pushed this trend uh, sort of to the next uh, degree for the reasons you were explaining earlier. And just to, just to put like a, illustrate sort of what we're talking about here and sort of how extraordinary it is, I found this in a, in a recent law review article that's describing this trend, this, the, the following statistics that in Belk, and, and we bear some responsibility for this joke, because as you mentioned, we represented the lenders. Um, you know, the court was asked to sign off on 652 pages of motions in less than a day. That's the order, the disclosure statement, the plan, um, you know, cash management order um, and motion and the like. And, you know, the, the idea that, you know, Every single word there is going to be read by all these creditors. And Belk is a large company, right? It had thousands of employees and dozens of stores and, and Lord knows how many vendors um, and, and landlords and other people in the community, right? The idea that these folks are all going to read and understand and have an opportunity to, to raise objections all in the span of, of a day is, is pretty hard to fathom. And, and the reality is, I think you hit it well, you know, the core of that was a financial restructuring, right? The, the trade, all these other people, all these other constituents were unimpaired, right? Nobody was getting, nobody's claims were compromised. Nobody was being left out in the cold um, or anything like that. And so to a large extent, those concerns were sort of interesting from a law review academic perspective, but from a real world perspective, were sort of, you know, purely in the hypothetical. Um, But having said that, Judge Isger had some concerns. And I think he oftentimes judges they not only have the case in front of them in mind, they also have the next six cases in mind. And and given that this was a trend and the Southern District of Texas is one of the places where um, this trend had, um, you know, had accelerated, 
um, because Judge both he, Judge he both he and Judge Jones had expressed a willingness and, and indicated a willingness to to bless these kinds of plans. I think Judge Isger. I mean, I'm not a mind reader, and I haven't talked to him about this, but I suspect that he was thinking about this, thinking about this notice issue, and and giving people how do we make sure that people's rights aren't compromised. And so what he did was when at the time, and and by the way, before I even get into it, he this was his own idea to which I give him enormous credit because. The parties didn't propose this. The, nobody came into that hearing, and I was there, um, suggesting that, oh, judge, we, you know, we we have this due process order that we've come up with to, to address these concerns. The U.S. trustee uh, raised this issue. That's their job. They are sort of a watchdog of the bankruptcy process, and often they are the ones at the first day hearing before a committee is appointed, before people have had a chance to digest all these documents. You know, courts look to the U.S. trustee at that first day hearing to put them on notice of the debtors trying to do anything that's not typical and not customary in these cases. Um, obviously, everyone knew going into that hearing that what Belk was proposing to do was um, unusual, and the U.S. trustee was ready for it and had said, Judge, you shouldn't let this happen. And it's, it's a problem from a notice and a due process perspective. And so Judge Isger who um, is a very practical judge, who, who who's familiar with the professionals who appear before him many times, un, you know, appreciated, I think, the U.S. trustee's concerns. I, I don't think he, he wasn't dismissive of them. I think he understood that while perhaps not implicating sort of real world concerns, as in like, it's not like the U.S. trustee was saying, you know, this particular vendor, this particular landlord was, was being prejudiced by this, was raising a policy concern that, you know, was worth considering. And so what he did was he confirmed the plan. Judge, Judge Isger entered the confirmation order. He uh, uh, didn't stay it, approved the, uh, you know, allowed the parties to close um, their transactions on the timetable that they needed to close to, you know, to preserve the business and consummate the restructuring. But he essentially left open the bankruptcy case for uh, a short period of time thereafter. I think it was 30 or 45 days um, to allow counterparties to executory contracts and unexpired leases, to um, uh, to raise any cure issues or adequate assurance issues in bankruptcy court, um, it barred Belk from really using um, the bankruptcy during that period to object to claims or do anything other than unimpairing um, or unimpairing any creditors, and it gave parties an opportunity to uh, opt out of the releases. There was a form of opt-out notice that went out to the world um, to give them a chance to opt out of the releases given the, the limited period of time that these documents were disclosed. Now, now, what did that accomplish? I think it accomplished a couple of things. I think Judge Isger recognized that, you know, this wasn't a surprise, this bankruptcy. Belk had announced that the docs had been publicly disclosed, you know, 20, at least a month earlier. So it's not like it's, you know, this, you know, for the vast majority of people that follow these things, this wasn't a surprise. Um, and it gave people an opportunity, you know, if there was a real issue to come to bankruptcy court, right? It's sort of like you wanted to file for bankruptcy. There's a certain price that comes along with that. And so we're going to give people an opportunity. But at the same time, recognize that the likelihood of anybody coming out of the woodwork to raise those issues was vanishingly small because, you know, the, the new investors were a combination of existing investors, and there was a lot more money being put into the company. Nobody was being impaired. 
So there really hadn't been any issue raised pre-bankruptcy filing. Um, oh, and, you know, the company had been proactive with, you know, their vendor community, their landlords, everybody else to message what the restructuring was going to look like. And so the likelihood that some someone would come out of the woodwork and raise an issue was was pretty low, I think. And so um, it was a very clever and I thought thoughtful way of balancing these issues. And I guess, Joe, just kind of, you know, because we're, we're, we're bumping up against about 25 minutes now and I want to keep these short. Um, let me turn it back to you. Do you think these, uh, the trend of these kinds of bankruptcy filings continues? Do you think, um, you know, people are going to try to push the envelope even further? And I mean, what's the fastest a bankruptcy can go? Six hours, three hours? I mean, where does it end? Yeah, I think it's a great question, Daniel. Look, I think the trend towards prepackaged cases and now towards one-day cases is reflective of a broader trend in the bankruptcy markets where 15 years ago, um, you know, debt and predominantly secured debt, which which has first priority in a bankruptcy case, was largely held by, uh, you know, uh, banking institutions um, that um, you know, were not particularly familiar with or willing to be aggressive, you know, in how they formulated Chapter 11 cases. And in many situations, 15 years ago, a company would file and would be in bankruptcy and working out uh, a plan with lenders for, you know, a year to two years. You know, as debt has traded from large banking institutions to more nimble hedge funds, um, there is going to be a look to towards how do we save every dollar we possibly can in restructuring expenses and how do we take the risk associated with a company in which we have an investment staying in bankruptcy for a protracted period of time and i think the move towards you know debt being held in 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 distressed funds and clo funds and you know at the same time you know major banking institutions you know becoming much more sophisticated with chapter 11 practice I do think as, you know, as the trend of creditor sophistication continues, there's going to be a trend towards, you know, either out-of-court restructurings or very quick expedited prepackaged cases. And certainly, you know, I, I, I do think that the rise in the number of, of 24-hour cases certainly will continue. I think Belk is a perfect example um, compared to many retailers. Um, you know, Belk was was unusual in that, there was a distressed company. There was, a, you know, two sophisticated uh, creditor groups that had different interests, and um, you know, and 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 an equity, uh, you know, a, a private equity company, equity sponsor that was looking to stay involved if possible. And those three key parties came to a deal with the debtors, um, you know, in a very short period of time under intense pressure over the holidays. And we're able to accomplish a deal through through a one day filing. So uh, if it could happen in Belk, it can happen in a lot of different cases. And I think it is a trend that will continue as as we see creditor parties becoming more and more sophisticated. How long do you think Belk holds the crown of fastest bankruptcy? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm somebody I'm sure will beat it. Will will, will beat it this year. And if not this, if the the only reason it wouldn't happen this year is because you know the bankruptcy markets are slow generally, but once things pack, pack, you know, uh, pick up again, Kirkland will beat their own record. <laughs> I'll take the other side of that bet. We'll see how it goes. We can revisit it in a year and see uh, and see who wins. Um, all right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, thanks, Joe, for joining us. Everyone stay safe, stay healthy, and look forward to hearing from you next time. Take care, everybody. 
Thank you for listening to O'Melveny's The Cram Down Podcast. This podcast is a summary for general information and discussion only and may be considered an advertisement for certain purposes. It is not a full analysis of the matters presented, may not be relied upon as legal advice, and does not create an attorney-client relationship between the firm and the listener. Portions of this communication may contain attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Views expressed by guests are their own. Please direct all inquiries regarding New York's rules of professional conduct to O'Melveny & Myers, LLP, Times Square Tower, 7 Times Square, New York, New York. 10036 telephone 212 326 2000